0: It's 7.45 p.m. on Monday, December the 29th, 1969. A chauffeur-driven blue Rolls-Royce pulls into the driveway of St. Mary's House, an impressive neo-Georgian mansion in the affluent London suburb of Wimbledon. Stepping out of the car, Alec Mackay dismisses the driver. The 59-year-old deputy chairman of News International doesn't usually get the chauffeur treatment, but the boss, Rupert Murdoch, is on holiday and he's let Mackay have his car and driver for the duration. Shivering against the cold night air, Mackay heads for the front door. He's looking forward to a relaxing dinner and an evening in front of the fire with his wife after a long day at the office. Before he reaches the door, Mackay notices a tattered copy of The People newspaper lying on the driveway. He picks it up. It's yesterday's issue. Shaking his head, he throws it in the outside bin. Mackay presses the doorbell, three short rings followed by a long one. It's the sequence devised to reassure his wife that it's him at the door. Following a recent burglary, where most of her expensive jewelry was stolen, 55-year-old Muriel Mackay is very nervous. As a result, she now locks the front door with a chain from the inside whenever she's alone in the house. Getting no response, Mackay rings the bell again. Still no answer. He tries the handle, and to his surprise, finds it unlocked. The inner door is also ajar. Worryingly, it looks like it's been forced. The Yale lock is bent, and the safety chain hangs loose. Feeling deeply uneasy, Mackay steps into the house. All the lights are on, and the contents of his wife's handbag are scattered over the stairs and across the hall floor. Worried, he calls out to Muriel, no reply. His heart pounding, he rushes from room to room, searching more urgently. In the kitchen, two steaks are laid out, ready to be cooked. His wife's expensive coat, which she'd never leave home without, is draped over the back of a chair. Back in the hallway, Muriel's outdoor shoes sit neatly on the bottom stair. In the lounge, the television on, the log fire burning, and their dachshund, Carl, sits on the floor. What really bothers Mackay about the scene in the lounge is the fact that the fire guard is missing. Muriel once lost two dogs in a fire and is an absolute stickler for keeping the fire guard in place. She would never leave Carl alone with an unguarded fire. Mackay then notices the home telephone lying upside down on the floor with its lead pulled out of the wall and the dialing disc missing. What on earth could have happened here? Back out in the hallway, he finds an 18-inch long, rusty billhook, a menacing-looking garden tool with a machete-like blade. It's not a tool he recognizes. Straining to hear any movement upstairs and fearing intruders may still be inside, he grabs the billhook and runs upstairs shouting Muriel's name. Nothing but ominous silence greets his cries. Upstairs is empty. Rushing outside, Mackay checks the garden and garage where Muriel's Ford Capri is still parked next to his own Austin Princess. His mind races. Has Muriel run off into the night when she heard intruders at the door? Is she out there somewhere, without her coat and shoes, freezing and terrified? Then a worse thought strikes him. What if Muriel has been abducted? The investigation which follows is one of the largest of its kind, taking a team of 250 officers some 40 days to solve. The case will go down in history for a number of reasons, the most significant being that it is Scotland Yard's first ever kidnap for ransom case. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. Mackay runs to a neighbor's house to raise the alarm. At 8 p.m. on the 29th of December, only 15 minutes after his driver dropped him off at home, Alec Mackay reports his wife as missing, presumed kidnapped. Ten minutes later, the police arrive and promptly conduct their own search of the premises. They find a jumble of baling twine and a strip of sticking plaster in the hallway. Mackay doesn't recognize these items. While officers examine the rest of the house, the newspaper executive tells police that what was left of Muriel's jewellery after the previous robbery is now also missing. The signs of forced entry, the billhook, the twine and sticking plaster all suggest that robbery was not the primary motive. The local officers suspect kidnap and call for Scotland Yard. Detective Sergeant Graham Birch, the CID officer on duty, immediately makes his way to the scene. He's met at the door by Alec Mackay, who shows him in. Immediately, DS Birch feels unsettled. In his opinion, Mackay's calm demeanor is odd. Surely he would be panicking, demanding that they find his wife immediately. Instead, Mackay calmly and methodically points out the various things which make him suspect his wife has been kidnapped. These objects look deliberately placed to Birch's eye almost as if staged for effect. The fact that Mackay is in the business of selling sensationalism for a living isn't lost on the detective. He can't rule out the idea that Mackay has somehow injured his wife and all of this kidnap business is a front. By the time D.S. Birch's colleague, D.S. Walter White arrives, the house is a hive of activity. In the half hour that's passed since Birch got there, Various members of Mackay's family have flooded in, all looking worried and asking the same questions. Where is Muriel? And what are police doing to find her? Much to D.S. Birch's annoyance, Mackay has also alerted a number of reporters and staff from the various newspapers in his News International group. He is determined to spread the word about his missing wife fast and wide. Until they know what they're dealing with here, DS Birch thinks this is a potentially disastrous idea. Both detectives remain skeptical of Mackay's claim of abduction. Experience tells them things are often not what they seem. By Mackay's own admission, he initially thought Muriel might have fled the house on hearing intruders breaking in. Surely that is a more likely scenario than kidnap. Given their doubts, DS White decides to concentrate initial efforts on searching the immediate area surrounding the Mackay's home, including the nearby Wimbledon Park and Common. As officers are instructed to begin the search, Mackay seethes with frustration. He doesn't feel like they're taking him seriously and he's not accustomed to sitting back, waiting for news. It's time to take matters into his own hands. First, Mackay calls the editor of the Sun newspaper. He fills him in on Muriel's suspected kidnap and asks him to run the story in Tomorrow Morning's Issue. If the police are going to waste their time scrabbling around in bushes, the public will surely help get Muriel back. Next, Mackay calls the editor of the News of the World, who he knows to be a well-connected man. He describes his frustration with the police and asks his friend to pull some weight further up the chain at Scotland Yard. As far as Mackay is concerned, They should be pulling out all the stops at this stage. His wife might be in mortal danger, so he's not just going to sit by while the cops chase their own tails. Sure enough, DS White hasn't even left the house to help with the search before he's ordered to treat this as a major kidnap inquiry. All necessary resources will be provided, comes the message from on high. McKay's reach and influence is both fast and frustrating and D.S. White is furious at being undermined like this. Trying to hide his frustration, D.S. White assures the family they're taking the situation seriously. While the search continues, he spends the evening interviewing Mackay and his children, building a detailed picture of who Muriel is. During his interview, Mackay stresses that they are happily married. He keeps repeating, that the missing fireguard is a sure sign that Muriel's been taken against her will. While he's fairly certain she wouldn't just leave him, he is absolutely certain she wouldn't leave her dog with an unattended fire. Still, DS White persists with his gentle questioning. If Mackay has anything to do with Muriel's disappearance, this is the moment when he will most likely slip up. These early inquiries not only build a picture of the missing person, but also allow the investigation valuable time to breathe. After all, if Muriel has been kidnapped, her abductors will make contact with the family soon enough to issue their demands. All they need to do is wait for the call. Around one o'clock the following morning, DS White is still with the family, waiting for news from the search team and doing his best to keep Makai calm. Searching the area has turned up nothing so far, and after questioning the family, White is beginning to believe Makai's kidnap story. The tension is shattered by the loud ringing of the home phone. DS White's heart leaps. Could this be the kidnapper's calling? Without any form of recording device available, DS White uses the second extension in the next room to listen in on the call, poised to make notes of everything said. An unknown male voice, dark and menacing, says, we are Mafia M3. We are from America. We tried to get Rupert Murdoch's wife. We couldn't get her, so we took yours instead. You have a million by Wednesday night or we will kill her. Get the money or you won't have a wife. Any semblance of control MacKay may have been clinging to finally abandons him. He shouts down the phone, I don't have a million pounds to get her back. I don't know anyone who has. You have friends who do. One million or she dies. The threat hangs in the air as the call ends. Mackay almost collapses as he replaces the receiver. Having heard it all, DS White comes back into the room. Mackay was right. Muriel has been kidnapped. And the ransom demand is extortionate. Only recently, White had been happy to see his salary rise to £1,500 per year. The demand of a million pounds, even for a man in Mackay's position, is ludicrous, especially at such short notice. DS White has until Wednesday, just one full day, to trace the kidnappers before they make good on their threats to kill Muriel. The ransom demand now means the case is officially upgraded From a suspected burglary and missing person inquiry to an abduction case. Whilst the upgrade means more resources will become available, DS White feels somewhat overwhelmed. No police force in the UK has ever dealt with a kidnap for ransom case. Scotland Yard finds itself in uncharted territory. But they're the best detectives in the country and they know how to work a case. Surely they can bring their considerable skill to bear here. The game is on. Of course, the story Mackay fed to The Sun newspaper is dynamite. The press and media smell a major scoop and descend on the Mackay home in what becomes known as the Fleet Street Siege. Sensational stories, wild theories and appeals for witnesses abound in the tabloids. The rampant attention is the last thing Scotland Yard needs. With no dedicated team to work on abduction cases of this scale, staff and resources are being pulled in from all areas. The first line of inquiry is to find any witnesses to the abduction. The houses in the street are large, detached and in substantial enclosed gardens. Not many neighbors here even see each other, let alone know one another. That said, one witness does recall a blue Volvo parked in the driveway at around 6pm. They noticed it because it looked dirtier than most of the cars in this well-to-do part of London. They didn't notice a registration number, though. With officers canvassing Mackay's neighbors and appeals launched for witnesses, DS White and the team turn their attention to the content of the Ransom call. Though brief, it raises far more questions than it answers. How, for example, did the kidnappers mistake Muriel Mackay for Rupert Murdoch's wife? Anna Murdoch is nearly 30 years younger than Muriel. Given that the Murdochs are on holiday abroad, perhaps the culprits decided to go for the next best option instead, the wife of Murdoch's second-in-command.
1: They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known, men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why?
2: Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill.
1: Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree.
2: Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations.
1: Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: It's Mackay who suggests that the confusion may have arisen because he's been using Rupert Murdoch's chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce while his boss is away. Perhaps the kidnappers thought Mackay was the newspaper tycoon. And therefore, Muriel was the wife to take. The next step is to trace where the kidnappers called from. In 1969, most phone calls in the UK are connected via an operator. This one is no exception. The operator tells police the call was placed from a phone box on Bell Common, on the main London to Norwich Road. The Common is in Epping, a small town about 30 miles northeast of Wimbledon. Both the operator and Mackay believe the caller sounded American, but that doesn't help Mackay think of anyone it might be. With the clock already ticking, police head to Epping to look for any sign of the kidnappers. An initial search of the area around the phone box on Bell Common yields nothing, though. Later that afternoon, the kidnappers call again. They tell Mackay he will soon receive a letter from his wife proving she is alive. Before they hang up, they ask if he has the money. He tells them he does not. The following day, December the 31st, is the supposed deadline day to meet the ransom demand. Instead of instructions on where to leave the money, though, a letter arrives at the Mackay House. Scribbled on blue paper, it reads, Please do something to get me home. What have I done to deserve this treatment? It's postmarked Tottenham, North London. Mackay is certain that it's Muriel's writing. The letter also includes a plea not to involve the police. It's too late for that. To be sure that the handwriting matches Muriel's, the letter is sent for forensic handwriting analysis. If it is Muriel, it gives police the proof of life they need. If she is still alive, there's a hope the detectives will get her back safe and well. But the kidnappers have insisted on no police involvement Will their efforts to save her ultimately lead to her death? Since the letter contains specific information only known to the real kidnappers, please try to keep it quiet. Should the contents become public, it could undermine everything. Despite their best efforts, detectives are dismayed to see the full letter in the sun the following day. Initially suspecting Mackay, they're frustrated to learn it was in fact An officer at Scotland Yard who leaked the document. This is the last thing they need. Still desperate to make progress, Mackay persuades his children to go on national television to talk about the case and plead for the release of their mother. They also make an appeal for anyone with information to contact them or the police immediately. This once again frustrates Scotland Yard as, from bitter experience, the influx of false information will waste their limited resources. Their fears are confirmed when a wave of hoax callers and copycat letters demanding money flood in, all of which need to be individually investigated before being discounted. The pressure isn't helped by the Daily Mirror, a rival newspaper to the Sun, who print the Mackay's home phone number. This means that police can no longer even be sure that the people calling the house are the real criminals. The case stalls. And so does communication from the kidnappers. Are they too late to save Muriel? Clutching at straws, the family connect with a Dutch clairvoyant, Gerard Quazet, who has helped detectives on previous missing person investigations. Armed with only a photo of Muriel Mackay and a map of the area, Coiseau informs the family with certainty that Muriel is still alive and is currently being held in a white farm, just outside London, near an old aerodrome. Whilst this is encouraging news, Kwasay also believes that unless she is found within the next 14 days, she will die. As it turns out, Scotland Yard has also reached out for help, this time from colleagues in the USA. The FBI have decades of experience in abduction for ransom investigations and happen to agree that Muriel will be being held somewhere remote and that finding her is a matter of the utmost urgency. Based on both the clairvoyant's comments and advice from the FBI, police narrow their search to farmhouses close to the Epping area, where all phone calls from the kidnappers have been traced to. Again, the search comes to nothing. After eight days of silence from the kidnappers, on the 7th of January, the family receives another letter. This time, Muriel says she's deteriorating in health and spirit as she is blindfolded and cold. She begs Makai to get the money so she can come home. Their initial joy that Muriel is still alive evaporates quickly, though. Police analysis reveals the letter was actually written shortly after she was kidnapped. She refers to the television interview the family did two days into the case. It also mentions that a group calling themselves M3 will be in touch. That group actually already got in contact in the early hours of the morning after she was taken. The letter is no help at all. In an attempt to flush the kidnappers out, police ask the Mackay's doctor to go on television, claiming that Muriel needs urgent medication and if she does not receive it, she could die. Perhaps prompted by the television appeal, things take a more sinister turn the following day. On Saturday the 10th of January 1970, the editor of the News of the World receives a letter marked Personal and Urgent. Posted from the East End of London and written on the same paper as the letters from Muriel, it states that unless Mackay stops working with the police, his wife will be disposed of. It also says... They will call Makai to arrange delivery of the ransom. They want the amount sent in two batches of half a million each. And then the ominous silence returns. Nothing more is heard from the kidnappers until January the 19th, 1970, 21 days after Muriel's disappearance. The message this time is short. They are still looking for a place to make the handover. Makai tries to call their bluff, Threatening to kill himself to solve the problem. But the kidnappers ignore him, telling him to wait for their call. To police, it seems unfeasible now that they'll have kept her alive for all this time, but they have to hope. On Friday, January the 23rd, 25 days gone, the kidnappers call again. This time, it's her son, Ian, who answers. He asks, We've got the money, but why should we give it to you unless we know she's alive? It's not necessarily true, of course. They don't have the money, but he's desperate to know if his mother is still alive. The kidnappers are in no mood to negotiate. If you cooperate, we shall release her. If you don't, you won't see your mum. Ian Mackay holds his nerve, again demanding proof she is alive. The kidnappers tell him rather bluntly, you're not going to get it. Perhaps foolishly, Ian blurts out, you can't prove she's alive because you've got a corpse. The call ends. Finally, on Friday, January the 30th, 32 days after Muriel's disappearance, the kidnappers get in touch again. They give detailed instructions for delivering the first half million pound instalment. The money in bundles of five pound notes is to be deposited in suitcases. They will call again to tell Makai when and where the drop point will be. The instructions are accompanied by a threat that any errors will be fatal. She will be executed on the 2nd of February. While a ransom drop is a perfect opportunity to finally rescue Muriel, police decide that it is too dangerous for any of the family to deliver the money in person. Instead, Armed police officers will impersonate them, taking Mackay's place in the distinctive Rolls Royce. The suitcases are packed with hastily printed forged £5 notes. Mackay places £300 of his own money in genuine £5 notes on top of the bundles. Hopefully, it'll fool the kidnappers that all the money is real. On Sunday, the 1st of February, three days before Muriel's 56th birthday, the kidnappers call again. They instruct the family to a series of telephone boxes on the A-10 road heading north out of London to a place called High Cross. They are to wait there for further instructions. Could this finally be the moment when Mackay gets his wife back and Scotland Yard catch the kidnappers? So many elements of the sting need to go perfectly if they're to pull it off. Unfortunately, there are more surprises to come. Determined not to lose the kidnappers, tracking devices were hidden in the suitcases and in the Rolls-Royce. But just as they're about to set off, they realize the trackers don't work. Instead, a remarkable 63-vehicle convoy heads off in support of the cash. Hundreds of plainclothes clothes officers in unmarked vehicles, including three disguised as Hells Angels bikers, set off for the drop. The suitcases are left at the designated spot in the village of Dane End, next to some paper flowers. The army of undercover officers do their best to blend into the hedgerows and open countryside as they lay in wait. Perhaps unsurprisingly, no one comes to collect the money. After several hours with no sign of the kidnappers, police retrieve the cases. It's back to the drawing board for the yard. The operation is not a complete disaster, though. Every passing vehicle in the area has been noted and recorded. One car that stands out is a blue Volvo. You'll recall a similar car was spotted in Mackay's driveway on the day Muriel disappeared. While its registration plate is too dirty for officers to make out the number, they did notice that it had a broken tail light. A check with the Vehicle Licensing Office quickly identifies the dozen or so Volvo owners in the county of Hartford. Only one looks promising. A car matching the description belongs to a Mrs. Elsa Hussain of Rooks Farm, Stocking, Pelham, a village only a few miles from the ransom drop. According to the electoral roll, she lives with her husband, their two children, and her husband's younger brother. But none of them have a criminal record. Thinking that the Volvo is not as important as they'd hoped, the information is collated and filed away. For now, police are unaware they're sitting on a significant lead. As they continue working through the sightings, hopes fade of ever finding Muriel alive. On Tuesday, February the 3rd, 36 days after Muriel's disappearance, the phone rings. Mackay and the police had all but given up hope of hearing from the kidnappers again, so they're surprised to hear the same menacing voice on the end of the line. The man tells them how they spotted the police convoy, including the bikers. The call ends with a chilling threat. We are considering what time she'll be executed. Makai is understandably distraught and feels the police have let them down. How have they not managed to find her and bring her home safely yet? After two stress-laden days, the kidnappers make contact again. This time, they insist that Mackay and his daughter, Diane, bring the money. Still not wanting to put the family at risk, police decide they still want to impersonate them. At first, DS White's boss wants him to dress as Diane, complete with makeup. They quickly realize that wouldn't work, and a female officer takes Diane's place, while another detective will hide in the boot of the Rolls-Royce. They've learned from the last time, so they're keeping the drop-off team small. Once they have a guaranteed location for the exchange, they'll be able to pull in more support. At 3 p.m. on Friday the 6th of February, the Rolls-Royce leaves Wimbledon with the two suitcases on board and heads to a telephone box in Church Street, Tottenham. They've not been there long when the phone rings and they're told to wait there for further instructions. At exactly 4 p.m., the kidnappers call telling them to make their way to a second phone box in Bethnal Green, East London. Duly doing so, police sit patiently, awaiting details of their next move. At six, they're told to leave the Rolls Royce behind and take the underground tube to Epping. The 45-minute journey north ends at yet another phone box. Growing tired of this lengthy treasure hunt, police are frustrated to now be told they need to travel a further 16 miles by taxi to Bishop Stortford. There, they are to leave the suitcase beside a minivan parked on the forecourt of Gates' garage. Finally, they have a drop point. As the undercover team heads towards the garage, police scramble to mount covert surveillance on the garage. They cannot afford to be spotted this time. The suitcases are finally left in position at 8.25 p.m. and police settle in to watch for the culprits. Unfortunately an innocent member of the public notices the abandoned suitcases and waits with them whilst her husband reports it to the police. The local cops know nothing of the Scotland Yard operation so they seize the cases and take them back to the station. Of course the team from Scotland Yard can't leap out and stop them or they'll blow their cover. Instead one officer heads over to the station to explain everything. The suitcases are repositioned and the weight is back on. Meanwhile, the surveillance team has noticed that same blue Volvo with a faulty tail light drive past the suitcases at least three times. Each time, the driver has been alone. Just before 10 o'clock, the same Volvo returns, this time with two occupants. They pull onto the garage forecourt, parking just 30 yards from the cases. Now, police are in a standoff. The Volvo driver is clearly waiting to see if the coast is clear. The undercover police, meanwhile, are under strict orders not to break cover until someone takes the cases. Once again, a member of the public threatens to blow the operation when the garage attendant comes out and tells the driver to move off the forecourt. Police watch helplessly as the suspected kidnappers drive off empty-handed. They now have a choice. Do they wait and see if the men come back for the cases, or pack up and go home? Fortunately, they hold their nerve, and at 10.47pm, the Volvo returns. It pulls up to the forecourt again, but instead of stopping, it speeds off, leaving the cases untouched. At least this time, the rain had washed away some of the mud and dirt, and they've managed to get a registration number. Quick checks reveal that it is the car registered to Mrs. Hussain of Rooks Farm, and that it matches the description of the one seen in Mackay's driveway on the day Muriel disappeared. Despite having no criminal record, this Mrs. Hussain must be involved somehow. Police certainly have enough to get a search warrant for Rooks Farm. They'll be going in first thing in the morning. At 8 a.m. on Saturday, the 7th of February, 1970, 40 days after Muriel disappeared, 20 officers from Scotland Yard and the local Hertfordshire force descend on a run-down pig farm 90 miles north of Wimbledon. The farm is not dissimilar to the one described by the Dutch clairvoyant, a white farmhouse not far from an aerodrome. Rook's farm may be run down, but it was once white, and the nearest aerodrome is only about 20 minutes' drive away. Whilst police are not superstitious, Everything, including the blue Volvo, is pointing here. With everyone in place, they knock loudly on the old farm door. It is opened by Mrs. Elsa Hussain. Police soon find Elsa's husband, Arthur Hussain, and his younger brother, 22-year-old Nizamuddin, inside. But there's no sign of Muriel Mackay or her missing jewellery. Both brothers, of course, deny any wrongdoing. But several of the officers recognise Nizamuddin as the man driving the Volvo from the previous evening. And another places Arthur as the passenger. Both brothers are arrested, handcuffed and led out to the waiting squad cars. A handful of officers remain at the farm, removing anything that may prove useful as evidence. Back at the police station, the interviews get underway, with some of Scotland Yard's more senior detectives doing the questioning. The brothers continue to plead their innocence, but their protestations fall on deaf ears. Police are convinced these two are the kidnappers. But do they have enough for a conviction? Over the next couple of days, and with the men still in custody, the team are now able to run through the rest of the evidence collected. They can finally see if any prints they've discovered match either of the brothers. The discarded copy of the People newspaper found on Mackay's driveway a palm print on one of the pages. This is a match for Arthur Hussein's. Publishers' marks on the newspaper itself show that it was from a print run delivered to Hertfordshire. The bill hook is traced to a batch sold to a hardware shop in Bishop Stortford, not far from Rook's Farm, and both the baling twine and the sticky tape found at Mackay's house match items removed from the Hussein brothers' home. Arthur Hussein's fingerprints are also identical to those found on the letter sent from Muriel. Voice analysis of the taped ransom calls match a recording of Arthur Hussein's voice. And then of course, there's the family Volvo. Despite the brothers' denials, police are satisfied that the evidence against them is overwhelming. With no sign of Muriel at the farm and given the length of time she's been missing, they can only assume the Husseins have killed her and disposed of the body. On the evening of Tuesday the 10th of February, after three days in custody, detectives charge both brothers with Muriel Mackay's kidnap and murder. They're sent to Wimbledon Magistrates Court the following day, where they're remanded at Brixton Prison without bail for seven months. Scotland Yard have caught the kidnappers and suspect them of murder, but what peace can they give to Muriel's family without discovering the truth or recovering her body? The trial of the Hussein brothers begins on the 14th of September, 1970, at the Old Bailey, in front of a packed public gallery. The prosecution is led by the Attorney General, Sir Peter Rawlinson, QC, who spends over five hours outlining their case. Interestingly, he concludes with the damning comments, altogether, there were 18 telephone calls and five letters. But since the day police came to Rook's farm, there has been complete and utter silence from M3. Before witnesses can be called, both brothers enter not guilty pleas and launch into cutthroat defenses blaming each other. Both have to be restrained by prison guards on multiple occasions for their emotional outbursts. This stokes an already tense and electrifying atmosphere inside the courtroom, further grabbing the attention of the world's media. During the trial, the court learns how Arthur arrived in Britain from Trinidad in 1955, with Nizamuddin joining him 14 years later. Growing up in a poor family, Arthur had wanted to better himself, but got into significant financial debt after buying Rook's farm. The court also hears how the kidnapping plot was hatched whilst the brothers were watching a television interview with Robert Murdoch. Arthur's wife was due to travel to Germany for Christmas with their children, and with her out of the way, they thought they'd have enough time to kidnap Murdoch's wife and extort a sizeable ransom. For several weeks, the brothers staked out the head offices of News of the World in central London, watching the chauffeur-driven blue Rolls-Royce drive away each evening. On the 19th of December 1969, Nizamuddin attended the vehicle licensing office of Greater London Council where he politely explained to the helpful clerk how his Volvo had been in a minor collision with the Rolls-Royce in question. The clerk confirmed that the car did belong to the News of the World and on being further asked if it was owned by the chairman, she couldn't say but thought it highly likely. What neither brother was to know was that later the same day the Murdochs flew off to Australia for Christmas, leaving Rupert's deputy Alec Mackay to use the Rolls-Royce in his absence. Convinced that this was Murdoch's car, the brothers followed it 10 miles south across the River Thames to Arthur Road, Wimbledon. There, the car pulled into the sweeping driveway of the mock Georgian mansion. Satisfied they had their target and convincing themselves that only a wealthy newspaper owner could afford to live in such a house, the brothers excitedly made their final preparations to become very wealthy men. On October the 6th, 1970, At the conclusion of the trial, the prosecution are satisfied that they have methodically presented all the evidence obtained by the Scotland Yard team. They have everything they need for a conviction of kidnap and murder. Everything, that is, except the body of Muriel Mackay. But in an unprecedented event in British legal history, the jurors are undeterred by this detail. They take just four hours to find the Husseins guilty on all counts. In summing up, the judge, Mr. Justice Seabag Shaw, tells the men that what they did was cold-blooded and abominable, shocking and revolting to all right-minded people. He sentences Arthur Hussain to life imprisonment for murder, plus a further 25 years for kidnapping, 14 years for blackmail, and 10 years for sending threatening letters. Nizamuddin Hussain received the same sentencing, except for 10 years less on the kidnap charge. The case goes down in history as one of Britain's first murder convictions without a body ever being found. Such was the notoriety of this case that both brothers earned a place in London's Madame Tussaud's Waxwork Museum. After the trial, the family, press and police all blame each other for delays and failings in the handling of the case. Whilst it wouldn't have necessarily saved Muriel's life, a faster police response in the beginning may have led them to identify key witnesses and ultimately get to Rook's farm sooner. Had Mackay's insistence on putting the story on the front pages forced the Husseins to panic? Perhaps as soon as they realized they had the wrong woman, they would have known they'd never get away with it. The truth is, Muriel's fate was sealed the moment she was taken from the house. Whatever police or her family did would have made little difference to that. Over the years, Arthur Hussein made several unsuccessful attempts to have his conviction overturned. Following several suicide attempts, he was transferred to a high-security psychiatric hospital, where he died in 2009. Nizamuddin Hussain was released in 1990 and deported back to his native Trinidad. He continued to protest his innocence of murder. Instead, he claimed that Muriel Mackay had collapsed and later died from a heart attack while sitting downstairs in the farmhouse watching a news report on her kidnapping. He did, however, provide a location of where her body is buried. He said, at the farmhouse there's a wooden gate, it has a barn beside it, and ten foot forward, the body's somewhere around there. I panicked and I dug the grave. To this day, no body has ever been found. No one knows exactly what happened to Muriel Mackay, except her killers. But at least, thanks to the hard work of the team at Scotland Yard, those killers were caught and brought to justice. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In September 1935, a gruesome discovery is made in the idyllic, rural town of Moffat in Scotland. On the dried-out banks of the usually peaceful River Lynn, a local detective by the name of Robert Sloan finds bags and bags of human body parts. The press will soon dub these killings the Jigsaw Murders. It will take a collaboration between local police, Scotland Yard, and groundbreaking forensic scientists to put the pieces together. But can they solve the puzzle in time to catch the killer. Find out next week. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser executive produced by Max Cutler Drew Cole and Pascal Hughes developed by Julian Warro for Parcast. series produced by Addison Nugent series consultant Roger Morris hosted by me John Hopkins written by Scott Walker supervising editor Kevin Pham sound design by Jacob Booth sound supervisor Tom Pink edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer mix master by Jacob Booth music by Oliver Baines And Dory McCall.
2: Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill.
1: Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.